if you have a Bible, I am in um, Ephesians chapter 4. And um, uh, for some of you who weren't here last week, um, I just want to applaud. Um, ben did an awesome job. I thought it was one of the, one of the best light collectives that we've ever had since I've been here. I just thought it was really, really good. And for those who missed it, um, sorry you missed out. <laughs> um, so it was just really sweet and good. And uh, thank you, Ben, for leading us. And, and um, we, um, this is one of my, uh, I think I say this a lot with Ephesians. Like, it seems like every passage in Ephesians is like, oh, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. If we had like a collection of greatest Paul hits, like a lot of the Ephesians passages would be in there. I feel like every one of them is just really good and rich. Um, and um, so I, I'm a big fan of this passage. I feel like I always come back to this passage. I've preached it multiple times. I have not been in ministry that long to be able to preach a message. that I mean, I preached this te- text probably four or five times in my uh, preaching ministry and my teaching ministry. So I've always, God always brings me back to this passage. And I think it's very significant. I think it's very significant to our day and age. I think it's very significant to your uh, to you in particular and where you are in your life. And uh, typically the church and involvement in the church is somewhat, uh, amongst college students in particular, there's a sense to be a drop-off when it comes to involvement in the church. Uh, I know that when I was a student at University of Tennessee, my involvement in church was pretty low compared to my involvement in church when I was in high school and middle school. Um, and so there tends to be this awkwardness when it comes to church when you get into college because you leave your family, you move some of you move to a new place, and therefore you've never gone to church without your parents, uh, maybe. And so it's difficult for you to really get involved in the church. And it's hard for you to kind of see what is your relationship or association to the church. And Paul really helps us here in this passage. So I'm going to read this. This is Ephesians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go to f- verse 16. It says, therefore, a prisoner, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another, one another in love, uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when, the, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does he mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in 
love. Let's pray before we kind of get into this. Lord, I am so thankful for this evening. I am, even though it is freezing outside, Lord, um, I know for some of us who stood out and gave out coffee, Lord, we felt every, uh, every, every less degree of, the, of warmth, Lord. We felt it in our hands and our feet and our bodies, Lord. But Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we have come together and we get to worship you. We thank you for the music we got to sing. Lord, we thank you for the word that we've already read. And Lord, I pray as, as we look into your word, I pray that you would teach us and Lord, that you would challenge us in our understanding of the church. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I kind of titled this The American Way, and I really want to talk about the difference between individualism and community, and I think this is, uh, this is really a big issue in our day and age. It's always kind of been an issue uh, of how we think about community and as also being an American who is super individual. Because um, I think Paul's passage here really challenges the American way of super individualism and um, before I get into that, I, um, I, uh, there's something about me. I, I've been known to, this, to be kind of harsh when it comes to weddings, that I don't like them, that I don't like to go to weddings. Um, I'm one of those people who don't really want to be invited to the wedding because I don't really want to go because uh, it's the same thing over and over again. But here's the secret, though. You're about to say something to, to Tom, right? Here's the secret. I like doing weddings, and I think I like doing the premarital counseling. And uh, my wife giggles at me because I actually enjoy talking about, have you, like, you know, done all your stuff? Like, have you gotten your, um, have you gotten the, the catering done? Have you got the cake done? I, like, actually enjoy getting into those conversations with couples. And I, I, my wife's like, you know, you really don't have to talk to them about that kind of stuff. Like, that's kind of stuff that you're not really responsible for. But I always feel like it's my job or my responsibility just to help out. You know, um, and um, but I really do enjoy like doing premarital counseling. I enjoy sitting couples down and talking about certain issues that come up in marriage, right? When it comes to communication, when it comes to um, how do you relate to one another, when it comes to sex and talking about children, all of those different things. I just that interaction is something that I, for some reason, I look forward to premarital counseling doing it and, and leading through that. And when I think about uh, this passage uh, in particular, I am reminded of marriage. And I want to read something that I, that I always say when I do uh, weddings. Let me, let me get to it here. It's something that I say every time when I do a, a wedding, when I do a wedding ceremony is I like to remind the couple that they no longer are individuals in a sense that they have their own wants and wishes and plans and in a sense they can do whatever they want. But now because they are getting married, the other person is important in their decision making. They can no longer just go out and, and just uh, do whatever they want without actually associating or connecting to their partner, and there's something, I'm trying to find it here in my notes, uh, that I like to say, and uh, let's see if I can find it here. Um, it's that, here. Here's what I always say. I say, going from Genesis chapter 2, he said, we know from Genesis 2 that God instituted marriage in the garden. Adam, the first man, was given a wife, Eve, by God. She was to be his helper to work and keep the land. 
and they became one flesh, no longer just two distinct individuals under God, rather a united force to glorify God by their working and keeping the land together. Yet we also know that the first married couple failed to follow God in obedience to his law, but that we were cursed. Man and woman became limited by their sin, and glorifying God through marriage became much harder to accomplish. Marital strife, even divorce, became a reality. Uh, so if marriage is designed to be an institution for the purpose of bringing praise to the one who created marriage, yet the individuals in the marriage are limited by their sin, which prevents them from doing what marriage is designed to do, what is the hope? How can marriage between a man and a woman be what it was designed to be? And I just like to talk about the significance of the institution of marriage, that they're one flesh, right? That, that uniting, that coming together, no longer do you didn't think only of yourself, right? You're like, you think of you and Kaylee, right? We bought a house, right? We are having a child. We have a dog. We are going to do this. We are going on vacation. Use that term we a lot now. You don't use I as much anymore. You transfer from using I to using we a lot. Let me ask Kaylee what we're doing. Let me ask Lisa what we're doing this weekend. You don't really just think, well, I'm free. I guess I'll just come over. You're always thinking in this idea of we. That is an important decision to make before you get married. Are you okay with no longer you're thinking of yourself just as I, but to think of yourself as we? And I actually had a, a conversation with a, with a student a while back, and he was in this relationship with this girl, and he, they were kind of having some issues, and they were, I think they, were, they eventually broke up. And I literally asked the question, is she, are you okay with talking about we, when you talk about your future plans, what you want to do, where you want to live, you think about what are we going to do? What are our plans? Or are you having issues because you're really just saying, I want to do this and I want to go there and I want to live there? And they ended up breaking up because they didn't really want to say we. They didn't want to say we are going to move here or we are going to go do this. They just wanted to go, well, I'm kind of going this direction and you're going this direction. And they had a difficulty of actually making plans together. And so they ended up breaking up. And I wanted to talk about marriage because I think there's an important part to this um, passage that comes up with marriage. Because what Paul is saying, he uses a lot of corporate language. He says, our, uh, our identity, oneness. He's talking about we, we are, we are together. And talking about this, this sense of corporate identity here as Christians in the church. That it's a corporate identity, not an individual identity. Um, some of my favorite stories in the Bible is actually the book of Ruth is a fantastic story. What was the last time you read Ruth? Has it been a while? Ruth is one of the best stories in the Bible. It's such an incredible story. What a rom- you think about romance, but romance is in the Bible. Like the story of Ruth and Boaz is such a great story. But one of the interesting parts of Ruth is the story of Ruth and Naomi and how much they loved each other. There's an intimacy that Ruth had towards Naomi. There's a sense where the Bible speaks of this intimacy and love of one another. We think, it in, and we think of marriage. We think of Ruth and Naomi. We think even David and Jonathan, right? They had a love towards one another. There was an intimacy that David and Jonathan had towards one another that you would see amongst friends, that friends love each other. There's a devotion towards one another. There's a love towards one another. And I, I want to present that to kind of introduce what we're talking about because we, we as individuals, as Americans, very much only think individually, right? We think very much what I have to do, what are my plans. The Bible really challenges that thinking. It challenges that uh, philosophy because it talks very much of we and identity that is corporate, not just individual. You know, Paul's been talking about since chapter one, our identity in Christ. We have this identity in Christ. We are in one body. 
because of Christ. And so in this passage, he, he talks about what is Christian unity um, and what is Christian unity? Um, how do we actually have unity amongst one another? Because again, as he says in chapter two, I mean, you have Jews and Gentiles becoming one. Like there's, he even talks about the walls of hostility being broken down. He, he talks about strangers and, and this sense of uh, uh, this new commonwealth, this new, uh, new man, this new identity of Jews and Gentiles becoming one because of their identity with Christ. So obviously, this is going to create problems, right? This isn't some, oh yeah, Jews and Gentiles are going to be one. That'll be simple and easy. There'll be no problems. There'll be no strife. There'll be no, con- no, no situations that arrive, uh, no uh, conflicts that arise. There was a lot of conflicts that arise in the church because of Jews and Gentiles becoming one. And so that's why Paul in uh, chapter 3 of Ephesians is, is praying uh, uh, for the unity. And so now he talks about how we can have unity in Christ. What does he start off first? A lot of times we would talk about, well, there needs to be unity in the church. But usually we say, well, we need to like, there needs to be structural unity. But that's not where he starts. He doesn't even start with structure at all. He doesn't tell you that, well, what needs to happen is, is that you need to do this in your worship service. You need to have this type of music. Then you will have unity. That's not what he says. He says he talks about character, and he talks about charity amongst Christians, and this is where unity starts. So he says here in verse 1, he says, The prisoner of the Lord, I implore you or urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What is the the calling that he's talking about. Well, the calling is what we see in chapter 2, that we're all one in Christ. There's a oneness that is in Christ. That is your calling. If you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're now united with one another. You are, to, you are now one in Christ, no longer individuals, no longer separated, but now one and unified in Christ. That is the calling from what you have been called. So he says, walk worthy of that calling. So he's talking about unity. So how do you have unity? He says, humility. Talks about uh, walking in a manner worthy of your calling, with which you have been called, verse 2, with all humility. So humility is significant if you are to have unity. You cannot have unity if you're full of pride. If you think you're better than your brother or sister in Christ, if you think you're better because you have more money or you come from the right family or you uh, have the right, um, whatever, whatever you kind of use as something to use to say you're better than someone else, that is pride and that will not lead to unity. You have to think of yourself, uh, uh, you have to put others before yourself. You have to think of yourself low, not above other people to have actual unity. That's common common sense, right? I mean, we, we know that, but how often in the church do, is there separation because others think they're better than others because of whatever reason? We think of uh, meekness. He talks about humility. He talks about gentleness, gentleness, being gentle with one another and, and showing this sense of compassion towards one another leads to unity. He talks about patience, being patient with one another leads to unity. Uh, mutual forbearance, looking over people's weaknesses, 
sometimes this is an issue. We, we get to know people and we just identify their weaknesses and uh, we tend to have a hard time over, uh, for, uh, like looking over those weaknesses or those particular sins and being patient and loving with those people. He talks about love. So says humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and love leads to unity. This kind of life of charity, giving up of giving over of yourself to others and trying to help people and better people leads to unity in the church. So this is our calling. This is a sense of character, and it's really much all of our responsibility to seek unity with one another, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And obviously, all of us in this room are Gentiles, right? We're not Jews, and so this idea that you need to be unified with other Jews is not really the issue here. But there's issues even in this actual room that causes separation, right? Some of you like other music than other people, right? Some of you maybe didn't like the songs that were played up here. Maybe you didn't like some of the, the bands that Garrison and Caroline picked. You're like, I don't like those songs. Those aren't the songs that I would have picked. That actually literally causes separation in the church. The style of music or what people wear to church, what translation of the Bible you use, actually literally causes separation in the church. That is not really the attitude of charity. It's not the attitude of giving over of yourself. Well, we would never use that translation of the Bible in our church. Never, never, never. That's a, actually using that as a means of saying you're better than someone else because actual translation of the Bible that you use. It happens all the time in the church. Well, even when it comes to style, right, in your church, we're like, oh, well, in our church, we turn off the lights and we use candles. Well, in that church, we don't. There's always things that we add in that causes separation uh, towards one another in the church. And this idea of showing humility and meekness or gentleness and patience and forbearance and love, this life of charity actually leads to unity. The, the second point is like our identity. So our calling is to be to seek unity. Now, what is our identity? And he, he talks about this starting in verse 3. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So he's saying we need to be diligent to maintain unity, even though in Christ we are unified, right? We are one man. We're, we're, we are in Christ. Uh, so we're unified in Christ. We have to still maintain unity because as we know throughout church history, even in our own time, is the tendency for Christians to not be unified, right? Even though, in essence, we are unified in Christ, but it seems invisibly we are not unified. And so we have to continue to be eager to maintain unity. So what are we, you know, even kind of establishes or roots what our identity is. He talks about the Trinity. The Trinity, uh, the oneness in the Trinity is actually the root or the foundation of our actual unity. He says here in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. So because we have the one spirit, the Holy Spirit, if we're Christians, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, right? And because of our indwelling Holy Spirit, we are part of one body. Right? The Holy Spirit makes us one. So we have that shared identity as having the same spirit. We also have the same Lord, talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Lord. We have that common identity that he is our hope. He is our faith. We put our faith in Christ. We've also been baptized in Christ. He says here, one hope, one faith, one baptism. We share this. Right? We all have been baptized into Christ. Right? If you haven't been baptized into Christ, we need to talk about that. If you've never trusted in Christ and you're actually outside the faith, 
but because you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you trust in his sacrifice on the cross, we are unified in that faith. And he's our true hope, right? He's coming back. He, he is going to restore what is, what is wrong in this world. He's going to restore those things. And we put our hope, so we have the same hope. So we have the same, also we have the same God and Father. He's the Father of all. We're part of the same family, right? God is our Father. He is our, our God. He is, he is all, we share that identity, right? So we have a lot in common, right? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been dwelt with the Holy Spirit, if, you, if God is your Father, we share that identity. And so we have to be eager to maintain that unity. We have to be eager and diligent to actually maintain unity with one another. There's that sense of that word diligent or eager. Are you eager to be unified with your brother and sister in Christ? Is that something that you diligently are seeking unity with one another? Or is it something you're not eagerly seeking? I think a lot of Christians aren't eagerly seeking unity at all. They're okay with being separated. They, the term is the biggest, the biggest segregation in, on, on any day of the week is Sunday, the segregation of blacks and whites, segregation of men and women. There's a segregation that happens in the church, and we're not eager to maintain unity at all. We're not diligent to maintain or to seek unity. The third thing is our gifts. So he talks about our shared calling, our shared identity, and then he talks about our gifts, that if you have been saved, if you have been redeemed by Christ, we are all all given gifts. He starts this in verse 7. Kind of changes to, but to each one of you, with each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So each one of us, there's no exception to this idea that because of your identity, because of your calling, you have been gifted, each one of us. There's no exception. It's like, well, these people are gifted, but you aren't. All of us have been gifted. Grace was given. Though obviously, we all have grace in Christ. We, have been, we share that identity that we have been given grace in Christ, but we also have been, give, have been given gifts by Christ. Christ is the giver of our gifts. He says that Christ descended, the incarnation of Christ, that Christ came on the earth, that he, he lived the perfect life, that he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, he was exalted, he conquered sin and death, and we received the pillaging or the gifts that he was bestowed because of his exaltation, he gives us gifts. And it says he gives various gifts, and there's a diversity of gifts. And all of these gifts, he kind of talks about uh, prophecy and apostleship and teaching and pastors. But all of these gifts are given for the purpose of service. All of God's people are given gifts by Christ to serve the church. It's not to serve yourself. And again, it pushes against this corporate, this individual identity. Well, I have been saved by Christ. I have been given the Holy Spirit. I have God as my Father, and I have been gifted. But the Bible pushes against that idea, doesn't it? It says, no, we have a shared identity in Christ. We have a shared identity of having the Spirit of God. We have a shared identity of having the same Father. We have a shared identity of being given gifts for the service of one another. So it pushes up against this individualism that tends to uh, be very much part of our lives, 
And all of these gifts are to build up the church, build up Christ's body. And so what is our priorities in our lives? What is our priorities? Is it your priority your own happiness? Is your priority your own responsibilities? Is your priority your own uh, self-help and your own uh, wealth and your own whatever, whatever, whatever? Or is your priority to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? As we have this shared identity, we have a lot in common. We have a shared identity in Christ, and we've been given gifts to serve one another, but are we actually prioritizing that as something that is very important to our lives? You're not independent at all. You're actually dependent on one another. If we are to serve one another, therefore... The persons in this room you are dependent on to serve you as you serve them. Not to go live in the mountains and the woods to, to live out your Christian faith alone, but to work that out together, sharing your identity, sharing your calling, and using your diverse gifts for the service of other people. The last thing is our maturity. kind of ends here that we have this the same goal, the same purpose in our lives, which is to grow to maturity. He says here, let me, let me find the exact passage here. He says in verse 13, until we all attain, attain, until we all attain something, we're all going the same direction, we're all trying to produce or, or actually accomplish the same goal, all obtaining what? To full unity. So of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, so all of this growth in unity, the result of our lives, the reason we have been gifted, the reason that we are together is to grow together in unity, to grow together in maturity, as mature manhood. There's a corporate identity. A, we're an all-single organism, basically. You're not just an individual Christian with your own individual Christian life, with your own individual relationship with God. We are all one single organism growing together, maturing together, attaining the same goal, which is maturity in Christ. So you can't, to be a Christian and not to be rooted in the church, to be serving one another, is an oxymoron. But yet it happens all the time, especially amongst 18 to 20-something-year-olds. This idea that you don't need the church, all that you need is Christ, makes no sense because you are in Christ, and Christ has sent you and unified you with a body to, and to grow together into maturity, man, mature manhood, into the fullness of Christ. And how are we to actually grow together? You know, I was thinking about marriage again. When you think about marriage, again, you're, it's not like, didn't, I'm going to grow in my, as a husband. Kaylee, you, you, you do your own thing, but I, I'm going to grow as a husband. That makes little sense. You grow together, right? There's a marriage. You're one flesh. You don't grow separated. You grow together. You both mature together, right? Your marriage matures as both people mature, not as one person matures. And someone else is like, well, didn't do all the work. Uh, he, he, you know, he's doing all this. He's, doing, he's the maturing one. I'm just going to do my own thing. That makes little sense. You're not going to have a mature marriage if one partner is wanting to mature and the other one wants to do something else. 
how do we grow to maturity? How do we grow in unity? By truth and love. By truth and love. We embody the gospel. We are full with the spirit of truth. The spirit leads us to truth. So we don't think about unity and going, well, I'm going to be unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have disagreements, right? Like, we, you know, we all think some one way about the Bible, and one of us thinks another way about the Bible. And all we really need is love. You know, as long as we love one another, we'll be unified. That is not the definition of Christian unity. Christian unity is growing in truth and in love. The Spirit of God is going to lead you to truth. It's going to, you're going to, if you want to be unified as believers, we must pursue Christ. We must pursue knowledge of his word. Not like, all oh, we need is love, and we'll be all unified, and we'll sing kumbaya. But it's also meaning that we don't just seek truth absent of love. You know, I mean, if you go to Southern Seminary, man, you get a bunch of people, man, they're pursuing truth. But there's, sometimes there's a missing element of love. How do you pursue truth and love? And when we love one another and we pursue truth together, we actually are unified. And so just to kind of conclude, I want to, uh, there's a book that I read. It's a very interesting book. If you are interested in anthropology or um, ethnographs or anything like that, like cultural anthropology, this is a fascinating book called My Freshman Year. And it's a book about a professor who became a student. It's a true story. A, a teacher basically wanted to do a study on college students, so she became a freshman. So she went to orientation, she went to welcome week, she lived in the dorms, she got involved in a club, she, she took on like a full load of school classes and stuff, and she went to class and she skipped class. And she like did the typical college experience. And she did a study, like she literally wanted to study how do college students, how do they live, how do they go about their life. And, and what she discovered was living in the dorms, that there are so many opportunities for community, right? And she tells the story that her RA wanted to have a movie night, that every Tuesday, uh, every month on a Tuesday, they were going to have a movie night. So they, 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 they advertised it all over the dorms. They, they had pieces of paper they gave out all the students. The first Tuesday night, how many, things, how many students do you think showed up? Two. So two students showed up. Even after they all agreed that, oh, it would be really cool if we did a movie night, they agreed Tuesday night would be the perfect night to do it. They, they had a movie night and only two people showed up. The next time they did it, zero people showed up. And she thought that was kind of interesting. Why? That everyone thought it was a great idea. Why wouldn't they go to the movie night? Why did they not go? And she found out people were like, well, I was planning on going, but then something up just kind of came up, and, and I found out I really don't want to go. And what she discovered was, is that students, freshmen especially, really, uh, community is something that we talk about a lot in college. Your University of Southern Indiana probably talks about community all the time, don't they? Be a part of this, be a part of that. But usually what happens is, is that students, while they want the idea of community, they really value individualism, freedom, and choice. And she found that students... Uh, who didn't get involved in Greek life, and they didn't join a fraternity or sorority or any other kind of uh, predominant club on campus, they found out in a study that they, 
they didn't want the obligations. They wanted to have freedom. They wanted to have choice. They didn't want all the obligations that come with being a part of a fraternity or a sorority or being a part of a, of a club that demanded a lot of their time. But the study found out that students who were involved in clubs or involved in Greek life were less likely to drop out and had the highest level, level of satisfaction with campus life. Even though they had demands on their time, even though they had obligations, and even though they had a little choice or freedom, they actually had higher levels of satisfaction in their campus life. So this, people want to be connected, they want to be protected, but they don't want the obligations and the trappings of their individualism. They, they, they don't want, to, they don't want the, the limits to their freedom, and they don't want anything to oppose their obligations. Community is a private or an individual decision. It's in the sense where I want community, but I don't really want all the obligations that come with it, and I want to be able to choose when I want to be a part of it. But I want community, but I want the freedom to not actually be a part of it as well. And even, I know it's in your dorms that you all have these social spaces, right? You have these areas that, with like tables and chairs, right? You all have this in your dorms and stuff. How often do you actually see people hanging out in them? Fair amount? What are they doing? Studying. studying. Okay, that's not really a community. That's just studying. Really? Okay, well, that's, we would agree with that? So y'all actually, y'all bucked the trend. What did you say? They're all oh, okay, that's the different and non-honors? So you didn't see very many people in the community space. How many people go to the C-Store? How many people do you actually see hanging out in front of those televisions watching stuff? Not many. So we create these social spaces, but we actually don't even actually use the social spaces. Because people really, they don't actually seek the community, even though the school is trying to provide opportunities, we don't, people don't actually seek it. They don't actually look to meet new people, even though the school tries to accommodate new friendships, but people actually don't seek them out. A lot of times they spend their time in their dorm. We've done Super Bowl parties on campus. Rarely does anyone show up. Where are they watching the game? Probably by themselves in their room. The gospel calls us to eagerly pursue each other in love. Serving one another, giving spiritual—I uh, mean, uh, growing spiritually together, coming together to love our neighbors. You are all adults here, right? I mean, some people want to call you—you know—not. I don't know what the terminology today is, and adult, I didn't know if that was still the term. Um, but you're adult. If you're—I mean, if you're 18 and above, you're an adult. You're treated as adult. You can. You can. Yeah, so most of you can vote. And as adults and as Christians, the Bible demands that you give up your freedom for one another. You are not individuals isolated from other people. If you think you are and you're a Christian, you are ignorant of the fact that you're actually united with other people in Christ. The quicker that you come to that understanding, the, actually, the more mature you will actually be in Christ. You have to give up the freedom. You have to give up the individualism. 
You have to give up the spontaneity. You have to give up the choice. And you have to serve the church. Gone are the days of, you know what, like, I kind of like this church, but there's some things I don't really like about it. Like, like they, I don't really like the music. I don't really like the, the style. That's a child's way of thinking about church. That's as Paul says, you're tossed to and fro. You're like children. A mature believer realizes that they're united with brothers and sisters in Christ, that they have to pursue unity with one another. They have to be involved in the local church. They have to serve in Christ's body. They have to use their talents for the sake of others. This is all for the, and, and, and to be honest with you, if some of you who come to my church at Redeemer, I need you. As a, as, a, as, your, as a fellow brother in Christ, I need you to serve me with the giftings that Christ has given you. I don't need you just to fill a pew. I don't need you just to come and grab coffee and just be here bodily. I need you to give of yourself for the sake of my actual maturity in Christ. That my maturity as a believer is dependent on your service in the church. Like that is so significant. You are not some casual pew filler. You are instrumental to my Christian life. And when you're not, in, if you're not involved in the church, if you're casually in the church, I suffer and others suffer because of your lack of commitment to the church. And you suffer by your lack of commitment to the church. And I will go on and on. This, I failed at this in college. Don't follow my footsteps. Don't fail. Give everything to your local church. If you don't come here, if you go to First Southern, if you go to Northeast Park or whatever church you go to, give them everything that you have. Give them your talents. Give them the little money that you have. Give them, give them your, your heart. Give them who you are and give it to them. And you will be blessed by it. You will be blessed by it. Because any other, any other way, if you hold on to that individualism and that freedom, you're in sin. You are failing what Paul's talking about here. And do not, brothers and sisters of Christ, I plead with you, do not make the mistake that it doesn't matter. It so matters. You know, I, just, I want to end with this because um, I think it's Maybe you don't know much about me. I'm a pretty shy person. And um, I struggled in high school and college making friends. I really did. Um, I think it's a sense that I'm very, I'm just, I'm fearful of other people. And I care too much what people think about me. And um, I struggle to be comfortable around other people. I struggle to be vulnerable with other people. But to be honest with you, I love Friendship. I love the people that are in my life, and I take that very seriously. I'm very loyal to people, and um, when you give yourself over to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're vulnerable with them, there's just something sweet that you get back from that. Um, and, I, and if you've never really done it, if you've never really put yourself before your brothers and sisters and say, "Here I am, my warts and all, love me." And, and, and help me mature in Christ as I help you. Like, if you've never experienced that, like, I just, 
I have to encourage you to do that because I was in that place for such a long time. And now that I am, am presenting myself before other people who can challenge me and hold me accountable and love me, even though I struggle with it. I mean, didn't knows I struggle with this. I struggle to just let people love me. But if you let yourself go and you let yourself just enter into that place, like God blesses you there. And God gives you things there that you've never experienced before. The true love, the true ministry that the Spirit does in your life, He does it through those people. And, and, and so I know you may be sitting there and you may go, I don't know, maybe if you've checked out now or maybe you're kind of thinking about what you need to eat before you go to bed, but I just want to encourage you, this Sunday that's coming up, like, I hope that your view on the church is different than it was today. And I hope that you go and you become a member of a church and you serve that church and you give to that church and you get to know the pastor of that church and you get to know the staff of that church. You get to know the old adults in that church and the, and the children of that church. And they know you by name and those kids run up to you and say, and they are excited to see you. And that older person that you talk to and encourage are also excited to see you. I want to just encourage you this Sunday to start that process of doing that. And if you have a problem, if you struggle, if you're like, Matt, I don't know where to go, I don't know what to do, then we will help you. This is the most important issue to me, is your involvement in the church, and I don't want you to mess that up. So, and come to me, talk to me, let me encourage you there, Denton will do the same thing as well, and uh, we want to just help you in that area. So, um, we're done, and let me pray, and then we'll end. Uh